O righteous father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I want to divide this section into three parts tonight. First of all, from the beginning of verse 25, we're going to look at and consider that the world does not know God, that the world does not know God. And I'm going to parenthetically say the world does not know God savingly, savingly. Then number two, we're going to see that Jesus tells us that God is known savingly only through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is known savingly through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, that the love of God and the love of Christ are in those who know Christ. So the world does not know God savingly. God is known through Christ and the love of God and Christ are found in those who know him, who know Jesus Christ. Now, as we close out this prayer, look at verse 25 and Note here that Jesus concludes by saying, O righteous father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you and these have known that you sent me. So here Jesus is declaring that the disciples know something that the world does not know. Although the world has not known you, I have known you. That is, Jesus has known the father. And these, speaking of his disciples and those who will follow the disciples, namely us who believe in Christ, these have known that you sent me. So the first thing we notice here is that Jesus is acknowledging that the world does not know God savingly, but he is known to all those who come to know Jesus Christ. And those are my first two points. But let's consider point number one, that the world does not know God savingly. We need to keep this in mind because this is what makes missions so important. We need to remember that the world cannot be saved by the world looking only at general revelation and and studying the sun and the moon and the stars and our humanity. Uh, There there is no sufficiency um, in the creation, boys and girls, to bring somebody to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul Uh, told us in the book of Romans that it was essential that we send out gospel ministers. How will they hear except a preacher go and blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. So this is very vital for us. I think sometimes uh, there is wishful thinking in even some sectors of evangelicalism that want to believe that people who never hear the gospel can be saved. And I think this is a reminder of the urgency That we need to pray and we need to give and we need to go into the world because that is the only way which the world will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby know God himself. Christ here is speaking salvifically when he says that the world does not know God. God, in one sense, is known by the world. That is, God testifies to their conscience and they know by way of conscience We are told in Romans chapter one that they are without excuse because of the things that they have seen and the things that they have seen testify to the power of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God and all the attributes of God. 
But that what do men do, though, in their wickedness, they take what is revealed to them in the creation and they suppress it in unrighteousness and in rebellion. When we sing Psalm 19, we see this same dynamic. If you look at the first six verses of Psalm 19, what does it say? It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That God is known in the creation. God is known in the things that he has made, but not savingly. The second half of Psalm 19 goes on to say what? It goes to sing about the the, the law of God. How the word of God is necessary for us to know God truly and savingly. We see this also in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, when the Apostle Paul is all by himself. He's ahead of the other uh disciples and missionaries in Athens alone. He's waiting for his compatriots to join him. And as he's looking around the city, excuse me, he sees an inscription that says to an unknown God. And what does Paul do? But he uses that as a segue in his preaching when he's in the Areopagus. Paul is telling people about the resurrection of Christ and People are in the marketplace and they're saying, we would like to hear more about this. And they bring him to the Areopagus. And Paul uses as an opportunity to say, it is true that you don't really know this God. The world does not know this God. But what you do not know, I proclaim to you. And he begins to talk about Christ and begins to talk about Jesus coming into the world and living the righteous life. Dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. And you'll remember, that's when they begin to scoff. Some of them in the audience, they begin to scoff when he talks about the resurrection. Because the gospel is foolishness to the natural man. The natural man does not receive the things of God. And and God is really not known, though he is known. I think you can see it in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar makes what seems like, in some ways, a, a confession of faith, but yet I don't know that Nebuchadnezzar truly was saved. I don't know that we can say that, especially given what happens later. But in Daniel chapter 4, in verse 34, you remember Nebuchadnezzar finally comes to his senses because he was boasting in his own uh, self. Look at what all I've made, Babylon the Great. And God made him to eat grass like a cow for seven years. But Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is ever an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So it was the revelation of Daniel that uh, Nebuchadnezzar received and then Nebuchadnezzar receiving, you know, the the punishment of God because he fell into that transgression that Daniel had warned him against, that he came to make this confession of faith. And also in Cyrus, in Second Chronicles, chapter 36, here's a pagan king who, again, I don't know that he knew God, uh, but he knew something about the God of Israel and so at the end of the chapter, Second Chronicles 36, we read this. Now, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, 
by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, among all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And Cyrus lets the people of God go. Here again, Cyrus wouldn't have known anything of the Lord. And again, we can debate how much did they know? You know, was it was it a knowledge under conversion or not? But um, certainly what they did know was by way of special revelation. That was given to them. The word of God came to them through Jeremiah, the prophet and through Daniel, the prophet. So God is known by conscience, but unknown savingly in the world. Ephesians two says that the reason for this is because our native self is dead spiritually. Uh, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians chapter two. Romans chapter three says that there's none righteous, no, not one. And there's nobody seeking after God. And also in the uh, epistle of first John chapter three and verse one, we read this. How great a love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Notice that John is saying here, we know God because of the grace of God and because of the word of God and because we have come to know Christ. But the world does not know us, does not understand us, does not recognize the reality of who we are in Christ because the world does not know God. And so we see that in the beginning here of Jesus's concluding petition. Oh, righteous father, although the world has not known you. But let's move on to the second point. He says this. Jesus says, secondly, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. Now, I want to spend uh, maybe the bulk of our time here. Uh, and and this is where we're going to look at some creeds and confessions together as well. Let's look at this again. Yet I have known you. That's Jesus talking there, boys and girls. Jesus is saying in this prayer, Father, I have known you. And these, meaning the disciples and all who follow them, have known that you sent me. Notice here that God is known through Jesus Christ because Christ knows the Father. In John chapter 1, in the prologue, we are told that Christ is the Word of God. That Christ is the Word and the Word was with God and the word was God. The word knew God in the beginning before the creation. Christ is that word. Christ was known by God and Christ was God. And then in later in that same prologue, though, it says that Christ came to his own, meaning his own people. But the people did not comprehend him. The world did not understand. The world did not know him. Though he was known by the father, Jesus says it himself later in John, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me, the only way we come to know God is by coming to know Jesus Christ. Truly. Now you say, well, what about the people in the Old Testament? 
Christ wasn't born yet. Christ was not incarnated yet. And yet, surely there were people who knew God in the Old Testament. And I would say that is true. God was known to them. However, how did they know him? They knew him through the typology of Christ in the Old Testament. That is, they knew of God through the sacrifices. They knew of God by way of the commandments that were given to them. You know, the circumcision, uh, these things that pointed to Christ. You know, Christ was the ark that Noah built. Uh, Christ was the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up. You have all these types in the Old Testament. And every time the people of God used what little picture of Christ they were given, when they did believe on that, they knew of God. They knew God and they were saved. So, yes, people in the Old Testament were saved and they came to know God savingly through Christ. They were looking ahead. The New Testament says Abraham saw Christ from a distance and rejoiced. And that was the irony. Here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees are resisting Jesus and they're claiming to be the children of Abraham. And Jesus is saying, if you really were children of Abraham, you would be like Abraham. Abraham saw me from thousands of years of distance and rejoiced in what little he saw of me. Here I am in the flesh, God in the flesh, right before your face. You can touch me. You can see me. You can hear me. And yet you do not believe you're close to me, but yet you won't believe Abraham was far from me geographically, chronologically. <laughs> but he saw what little he saw. He he saw savingly. Jesus said it to Philip when Philip said, show us the father. And Jesus has to admonish Philip, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you've seen the father. Now, it says here, I have known you and these have known that you sent me. How is it that the father knew Christ from all eternity? Well, because Christ was with the father in eternity past. And that is because Christ is the eternal son of God. And the reason that the father knows the son and the son knows the father is because the father and the son are of the same essence or the same substance. The Greek word which is used in our Nicene Creed is the word homoousion. Actually, it's homoousios in the accusative case in which it is used. But the Nicene Creed in 325 adopted as its confession that Christ was the same in the very essence as the Father. That is, as the Father is fully God, so also is the Son. And I want you to take, if you would please, uh, your hymnal and turn with me to page 852 to the Nicene Creed. Now, we're dealing with the subject that God is known through Christ because Christ knows the Father. One of the reasons that Christ knows the Father and the Father knows Christ is because they are of the same essence in the Godhead. They are distinct in their persons, but they are the same in essence. Now, if you look at the second paragraph where it deals with the Son on page 852, and I know that we've only in the past year or so have begun to use this Nicene Creed, so it's still kind of new for many of you, but... 
Uh, many of you have, have known it for a long time. It was written in 325 A.D., so in the fourth century of the church. Look at the part that deals with Christ in the second paragraph. And notice what the confession, the creed here says. It says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, so that Christ has always been the eternal son. Christ has no beginning. He has no end. And then notice the next line. It says that this is speaking of Christ now. God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, <clears throat> Jehovah's Witnesses, not made. Christ is not the first act of creation. Begotten, not made. And then notice there being of one substance with the father. That word which we have here in English as substance is behind it the Greek word when this creed was originally written, the word homoousius in the accusative. In the Latin, the, it, uh, it was translated co-essential or consubstantialis. And then that's where we get the English words co-essential or, co- or consubstantial. Co-essential or consubstantial. Meaning here that Christ shares this same essence with the Father. They are both fully God, though distinct in their person. If you look at the next page in the Athanasian Creed, look at the Athanasian Creed on the next page, 853. Look at uh, number three there. Now, this is the Catholic, that means universal faith. Now, this is the Catholic faith that we worship the worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. The father is essentially God. The son in his essence is God. The spirit is God for the person of the father is a distinct person. We, can't, we don't want to blend the Father with the Son. God does not sometimes put on the face of the Father and then sometimes the mask of the Son and sometimes the mask of the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. The Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal. Christ shares equal glory with the Father. God has said, I'll share my glory with no other, right? Isn't that what he says in Isaiah? And yet, what does he do? He puts Christ at his right hand. Because by, in a sense, sharing the glory with the person of Christ is not sharing it really, in a sense, with another because they are of the same essence. For the person of the father is a distinct person. The uh, the person of the son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. Number six. But the divinity of the father, son and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal. The majesty co-eternal. Now, I want you to jump down. Verse twenty nine, because we could spend all day on that first paragraph. But look at then at number twenty nine here in the Athanasian Creed. 
But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now, this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the father. There again, we see the same thing. They share the same homoousius, same essence. Okay, coessential. From the essence of the father begotten before time. He is man from the essence of his mother. So he's also fully man born in time, completely God, completely man with a rational soul and human flesh equal to the father as regards divinity, less than the father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh. That is, he he's not a demigod, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God, God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. And and it goes on. But there I want you to see how it is that the, the, the father knows the son and the son, the father. One more place I want you to go is page 857. I want you to see this from the Belgic Confession too. page 857. And look at Article eight. I'll look at Article eight. It says the Trinity in keeping with this truth and word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence. Here it is again, in whom there are three persons really, truly, eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin and source of all things visible as well as invisible. The Son is the word, the wisdom and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction, that is the distinction among the three persons, this distinction does not divide God into three since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own, there it is again, subsistence. Distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. And then uh, look at Article 10 real quickly with me. Article 10, page 858 on the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only son of God, eternally begotten, not made. There's that Jehovah's Witness clause again, not made or created nor created for then he would be a creature. He is one in essence with the father. You get the idea here? All these creeds and confessions share the same theology here that the father and the son 
know each other and are known by each other because they share this essence. Co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father and the reflection of his glory being in all things like him. He is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our nature, but from all eternity. As the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. And then it goes on and cites some places from scripture here. So the world does not know God. But the good news is that Christ knows God because Christ is fully God. They have this common essence. They share this subsistence, this essence together as father and son. They are co-eternal, co-glorious. And notice, though, that what Christ does. Christ says, yet I have known you. And then he goes on and he says, and these have known that you sent me. This is why, boys and girls, it's so important that you come to know the person and the work of Jesus. Because this is how you come to know God. Jesus is the revelation of God in the flesh. And so when you see Jesus speaking, you see God speaking. When you see Christ dying on the cross, As a man, perfect man. He is dying as one who knows God, who lived perfectly for God and is able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. And he, if you will, comes near to us in the gospel so that we could know the father, that we could come to know God. How do I know God? I come to know him By looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. I come to know God by looking and listening to what Christ has said. By believing on Christ. Because of all that we've just seen here from our creeds and confessions. This Christ offered to us is very God of very God. Yet become man and crucified for sinners. That whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me bring it quickly to the third and final point, and this will be shorter. Notice here, he says in verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known. This is how you come to know the Lord through Christ, so that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. How do I come to A knowledge of God's love for me as a sinner, as an individual. I come to know the love of God chiefly as it is evidenced to me in the sending of Christ. The Bible says that there is no greater love than this, that one man should lay down his life for another. Christ laid down his life for us. Romans says that for a righteous man, some or one might lay down his life. But the gospel in its beauty is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul would later go on in Romans chapter 11 to wonder at the wisdom of God in in this gospel and this love of God. Let me just read to you here. 
from Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He could have also said how unfathomable is his love. The love of God has no height nor width, depth or breadth. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has given or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the love of God for us, congregation. As we are about to behold his love in the Lord's table here by taking of the bread and the cup. This is the love of God to you as sinners. It is Jesus Christ dying. Jesus Christ crucified. Paul summed up his whole preaching ministry in that one phrase. I preach Christ and him crucified. Well, what do we do? Well, it depends who you are. First of all, if you are outside of Jesus Christ tonight, your first obligation is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is how you come to know the Father and his love for you. You believe on the Son of God. You believe that he became a real man. You believe that he lived a perfect life, that he substituted himself for you in life and in death and in the resurrection. You trust in him. You forsake yourself. You forsake your own righteousness. You forsake your sins and you look to Jesus Christ. You say like the blind man on the side of the road, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. A sinner. You look to Christ, you cry out to Christ. You read the Bible and look for Christ in the scriptures. You pray to him and seek him until the Holy Spirit confirms to you that you are a child of God. You pursue him. You read his word, you meditate upon it, you seek out Christian fellowship to help strengthen your love and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You listen closely to the sermons seeking to apprehend Christ, even if it's only touching his garment. Even if it's just laying hold of a little bit, if you can only lay hold of a little bit of Christ, that is sufficient. You don't have to be as the Apostle John who leans his head upon the breast of Christ. You can be as the woman with the bleeding problem and just touch the edge of the garment. Christ is willing to accept you if that's all you can do, if that is all you can lay hold of. It's just that little piece of Christ. Well, then grab that little piece. Do what it takes to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put yourself in a position where you will come to faith in Christ. Don't expect you to. Come to Christ if you're not going to use the means that God has given so that you can look to Christ and trust in Christ. I've used this before. You need to be like Zacchaeus. And if you have to climb a tree to see Christ, then you climb the tree. You do what's necessary to be put where you can see Christ, hear Christ, learn from him, believe on him. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is true. It's a work of God. The wind blows where it will. The spirit will blow where he will. But nevertheless, we have an obligation as sinners to be doing what we can to come to Christ, though it is all a work of God. Nevertheless, you are the one who is commanded to repent and believe. And therefore, you have an obligation. You have a responsibility before God. You cannot be completely passive and just say, well, if I'm elect, I'm elect. 
and I'll just live the way I want to live and I'll do what I want to do. And if I want to go to church, I'll go to church. And if I want to skip church, I'll skip church. And because it's all up to God. No, that's not the way the Bible teaches how you come to faith in Christ. If you want to come to faith in Christ, then you need to seek him like the deer panteth for water. You need to yearn for him, long for him, look to him, believe on him. Uh, you, you cannot, you know, God could save apart from that. But the Bible says you don't test God. You don't put God to the test. You don't expect to go to heaven if you're not going to church. It's that really that simple. Yeah, God does save some people who weren't going to church at all. They maybe started reading their Bible or Maybe a friend witnessed to them and they came to saving faith or maybe they live in a country where you can't go to church, but they heard something on the Internet or they heard something on a radio program. God is merciful. God does wonderful and gracious things like that. But in, 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 in a situation in which we find ourselves, we're not in an extraordinary situations. These are ordinary situations and, and we are commanded to be in the house of the Lord. And so if you have friends who you know, wonder about their salvation, you need to tell them, well, you need to be in the house of the Lord if you're not in the house of the Lord. Now, don't expect to enter the gates of heaven if you're not darkening the door of a church. You, you really need to come to your senses and, and, and recognize that God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And if we reap, if we sow to the flesh, we reap the whirlwind. But if we labor to put ourselves under the word and, and give ourselves to the means of grace through prayer and Christian fellowship, then God may very well be pleased to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're outside of Jesus Christ or you have friends or family members who are outside of Christ, they need to be under the means where they can see Christ. Let me also say for those of you who are in Christ tonight, we have the opportunity to recommit ourselves and reaffirm the love of God to us. The amazing thing about God's love for you is that you are loved by the father in Christ with the same love that the father has for the son. That's one of the remarkable things about this last verse, isn't it? So that the love with which you loved me, this is Jesus talking to the father, so that the love which the father has for the son may be in them. Or to put it another way, in you. That the love which is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit is the same love the Father has for the Son. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it, when you think about how deeply am I loved? I am loved to every nth degree that the Father loves Jesus. Because I'm not loved apart from Jesus. I'm loved because of Jesus, because before the foundation of the earth, I was chosen in Christ. And Christ came and died for my soul. And I was loved from the beginning by the father because of the love of Christ that he had for Christ. Reaffirm that tonight here at this table. Let's pray together.